All right, well, good morning, everybody, and uh, thanks for joining us in today. We're calling this Norfew Special Edition uh, because you're all watching online this morning. The snow has been great. Ha- by the way, happy Valentine's Day, and I uh, hope you enjoy celebrating as a family. Um, we just thought it would be wise with the snow and ice, and again, we just looked outside a minute ago, and it's dumping snow, and so I thought it would be better if we stayed home this morning, but we're down here. It's a crew. It's David and Susan and myself, and so we're running the show, and uh, we're going to spend some time together. This morning, we're going to begin to wrap up our series in the book of Philippians, and it, what a great uh, study it's been. Um, we're going to end next week, and uh, everything we're going to cover this morning dovetails and extends from what James covered in the last three weeks. So if you want to go back to our website and download some of those, if you missed them, and pick up what James covered in the book of Philippians, that would be really helpful. And by the way, didn't he do a great job? I was hoping we'd have an audience this morning, we could clap and applaud, and uh, we're not able to do that, but uh, he just did a wonderful job carrying that. And uh, this is going to be exciting uh, for us uh, as a church, just to see what God does here at Norfew over the next two years. So really looking forward to that and uh, excited. So some of you may be wondering, uh, just as a, as a connection piece, what is James going to do now, now that he's not speaking? And I just want to, again, give us the areas of responsibility that James will be functioning in. The first area that he'll be functioning in is community groups. Um, we figured that uh, we would have James, he needs to get to know people and he needs to spend time with people. So community groups is the best way to do that. And then we're going to have him in charge of the missions team, which is kind of a no-brainer. That's kind of his area of expertise. And then there's a number of people. We have uh, Phil Wagner and we have John Clements and we have the Lansings and others who really have a heart for evangelism. And we want to bump James up next to them and have them all kind of thinking together in that area. Another area that James is very competent in is counseling. And once he gets his feet on the ground, uh, we're going to have him lean into that. And then, of course, speaking. James will be speaking on and off as we head through the year, so that'll be exciting. Along with this, I want us to know that James has been installed on the board so that he will have a two-year ramp-up time to get accustomed to the board and the issues that are dealt with on that level. So that's where we're going with him, and I hope you enjoy that. Uh, This morning's message uh, will identify what I call the pebble in the shoe effect. What do I mean by that? Well, have you ever been walking or out here in the Northwest hiking and you get a a small stone in in your boot and it settles down right in the bottom of your shoe, right? Right against some part of your foot. Now, you can't keep walking, but if you don't stop and take that pebble out, you're going to have one big blister or bloody foot by the end of the hike. What's the pebble in most of our walks with God? What's that irritation factor that if we don't deal with, if we don't pull it out, uh, will end end up giving us a big blister? And I want to suggest this morning that it is lack of contentment. We're going to look at that. We're going to explore that thought this morning. But before we do, let's let's seek the Lord in prayer, all right? Father in heaven, as we come to you this morning, it's a, a unique morning in that everyone is not here and everyone's watching in. And so, Lord, we live in an amazing time where we have this capacity to be able to do that. What a blessing and gift that is. And so this morning, Lord, in a special way, we ask for your grace 
to be connecting and translate the words I'm using uh, to the hearers and that you could speak. We know your Holy Spirit is not limited by distance or time or anything, uh, even space. And so we uh, come to you this morning asking you to do what only you can do. Only you can take human words and, and use them in divine ways to speak encouragement to people, to speak uh, uh, responsibility to people, lessons to people. You can do that in your spirit. So we seek you this morning that you do that, and uh, we depend on it, and we give that to you a great hope in your name. Amen. All right. Well, let's pick up the dialogue. We're going to start where James left off last week when he was speaking in Philippians chapter 4. Take your Bibles, open up, or your phones, or whatever you're using. We're in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 10. And verse 10 reads like this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now there's a ton packed into these two little sentences uh, Paul had received support and actually several gifts uh, from the Philippian church, and, and this was, gift was mentioned after some sort of interruption. We don't know exactly. Uh, some think Epaphroditus, remember him from the first two chapters, uh, became sick on the way while he was trying to see Paul, and that, that could have caused the delay. Uh, Paul was expecting the gift, but it was failing to show up. Uh, he was in Rome for two whole years on his own expense, we know that from Acts 28. And if it was during uh, his imprisonment in Rome, as most scholars think, the Philippian church would, could have potentially had a hard time tracking Paul down to actually give him a gift. Now, this doesn't make sense to us because we can track everything these days, right? And you just hit your phone and you can track your kids and all that kind of stuff. But you have to remember, back then, they had no cell phones. They didn't have email. There was no such thing as Google Maps, they couldn't just bring it up. There was no internet. There was not even anything like radar. So if a ship was out on the sea, they could track where it was. They had no idea how to do that. They didn't even have telegrams. And so uh, in that era, it took a while to find you once you were lost. And that's probably what Paul meant when he said, you indeed had concern for me, but you had no opportunity. In any event, Paul was thrilled that they had again come to his aid and revived their concern for him. And uh, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Uh, it was kind of Paul's stimulus check, right? <laughs> we know how those work. And uh, Acts 28 tells us uh, that he lived for two years on his own expenses, verse 30, and that he may have begun to be in need of some support by that time. And so it was a great gift at a great time. And Paul uses uh, this to express something to us this morning that is very helpful to him, and I think also very helpful to us. So let's pick it back up in verse 11, chapter 4. These are famous verses, and they're famous for a reason. They have instructed the Christian community for over 2,000 years. Let's take a look at them together. Verse 11 starts with this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul here brings up a very important issue. That issue is the issue of contentment. Resting and trusting in the Lord. 
Uh, before we deal with contentment, let's deal with circumstances. Because often we would say it's our circumstances that rob our contentment. And it is the circumstances of Paul's life that develop this character trait. Paul draws upon these life circumstances to illustrate this point for the Philippian church. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and being in need. Illustration number one would have been his time in, in Philippi itself. Acts 16, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, tells us this story. and Talk about being brought low. If you just kind of quickly scan that chapter, what you'll find out is that Paul actually does a good deed. He frees a demon-possessed girl from uh, the demons that had controlled her, and for thanks for that, he gets beaten with rods and thrown in jail. The Philippians had witnessed that one firsthand. Acts 16 tells us that Paul and Silas were in jail singing hymns at midnight after having been beaten with rods. And I guarantee you, in that era, they weren't concerned how you feel, right? Is that too much? Tap, tap, tap. That wasn't how it went. They beat the snot out of you. And they were beaten within an inch of their lives, and, and, and they're in jail. They're, it's at midnight, and what do you find them doing? Singing hymns. That, people, is trust. That is contentment. Paul also knew how to be in circumstances where he was honored and, and had abundance. Uh, on his trip to Jerusalem, Acts 20, you can turn there, he bypasses Ephesus because he's hoping to make it to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and so he has to rush to try and get there, so he skips by Ephesus. And uh, the Ephesians elders held him in such high esteem that they went 50 miles down to Miletus. They traveled 50 miles uh, to pray and worship with him and to send him off. Talk about honor. They were sure that they would never see him again, and the fact is they never did. But talk about honor. They were thanking Paul for everything that he had done for them, and in one of the most poignant uh, moments in all of Scripture, it says that when it came time for Paul to leave, look at what it says here in Acts 20. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. That's real honor. Paul also demonstrated contentment with his stay in Jerusalem, which resulted in his being imprisonment in Caesarea Philippi for over two years. He used the time and the opportunities to witness both to his captors and his enemies about the truth of Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, this is astonishing. Uh, Dr. Luke, the physician, records no self-pity in the book of Acts when he records Paul's attitude. Look at those verses again. Let's, let's read them again. It says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's journey to Rome with its resulting shipwreck and stay on the island of Malta is another living illustration of these statements. And this, is, this one's worth a closer look. If you take your Bibles, turn to Acts 25, 
and, and as you get there. And if you're wondering why the Philippians weren't able to find Paul, here's why. After two years, King Festus wants Paul to go to Jerusalem for trial. And uh, Paul, knowing that there's a trap set for him, appeals to Caesar to keep this from happening. Acts 26, after several trials in which Paul shares his testimony, he's escorted, actually, he snuck down to the harbor, uh, down to the Mediterranean Sea, and then he begins to sail to Rome. Acts 27, here's a map of the Mediterranean, and here's the journey that he took. So you find out he's, he's there, and he's in Caesarea, and then he goes to Tyre, and then from there they go up to Sanindus, all right? You can see that at the bottom there. You can follow the red line. So they are on the southern part of, southwest part of, of what we would call modern-day Turkey. Uh, and so because of the winds and the way the trade winds blew, they actually went south, and from uh, Sanindus they go down to Crete, and they go down on the south half of the island where there's a harbor called Fair Havens. And when they're there, they realize they can't stay there for the winter. The harbor's not suitable. Uh, the ship could actually be wrecked in the storms that come through. So what they're hoping to do is go to the east end of, or the west end of that island to a place called Phoenix. And so they, they start out, at the, the text says that a favorable south wind started to come and they thought they had gained their advantage and so they set out. And no sooner did they set out than it says a nor'easter, which we would call a hurricane, comes sailing down out of the north and kicks them out past this little island of Cauda. And from Cauda, they get blown straight. From, they can't steer it. And so they let the ship go. And the ship goes straight from Cauda all the way across for over two weeks. And they land on the island of Malta. Uh, incredible storm. The ship barely made it. They did everything they could. They had to throw, throw everything off board to keep the ship light enough to stay afloat. And then, of course, the story goes that they go from Malta and Paul winds up in Rome. But I want to go back for a moment to the island of Malta because there's another piece to this story that is really important. Uh, as you look at that map and you see from Cauda where they are blown across the Mediterranean, it was a terrible storm. They didn't think they'd survive. They strapped the boat. They threw all the cargo out, everything like that. And when they got close to Malta, they because they were sailors, they were aware of the way of the waves were working and stuff, that the, I, some piece of land was actually coming up. And the ship ran aground on a reef, and then the storms and the waves began to smash and batter the ship. There were 276 people on the boat. So imagine this, if you can, the ship's being torn in half, and the captain tells them, everybody grab a plank or grab something and swim into uh, shore. And if you've ever been... Um, to Hawaii or something like that, and the waves come in and you get tumble dried in the surf, right? Uh, you can imagine them coming in with these huge waves landing on uh, boards and planks and whatever they could grab and just getting rolled in the surf and up on the beach. And the natives realize what's happening and so they come out and they build a fire so that they could warm up, probably in danger of hypothermia, I would guess, and uh, in the process, Paul picks up a, a bunch of brush and he throws it on the fire. And when he throws it on the fire, there was a snake in the brush or in a log. And when Paul threw it on the fire, the snake came out and it, it bit Paul's hand. 
Now, the word for that snake is uh, viper. It says a viper came out. The Greek is enchinda. And why that's important is it means a poisonous snake, right? So it's not just an average snake. It's a poisonous viper. And so that viper comes out and latches onto Paul's hand. And uh, can you imagine, just freeze that moment. Here's a key point. Think of all that Paul has been through. Just think of what it took just to get crashed on the island of Malta. And when the snake bit him, he could have really gotten frustrated and said, really, God? Really? Are you stinking kidding me? All of that just to be bitten and die here on this God-forsaken island? Wouldn't that be how you and I would react? Don't we get frustrated with circumstances so easily? Paul did not. It says he shook the viper off, and when he didn't die, the islanders thought he was a god, right? It was actually a demonstration of God's power in Paul's life, but he had to go there for the power to be revealed. Let's let's go over those words one more time. Philippians 4, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Think of the spectrum of Paul's life and the number of circumstances he was in. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the question on the table this morning is, how does this apply to us? Right? As I've said, these, these verses have been a, a strong encouragement to Christians over the last 2,000 years. And maybe it might be helpful first to go over what contentment is not. All right? Contentment is not laziness. Contentment is not just, hey, I don't have to do anything. God will do it all. I can just lay here and supernatural stuff's going to happen. Okay? It's not laziness. Contentment is not fatalism. Fatalism is, well, whatever happens will happen, and I can't change anything, so I'm not really going to try, and uh, I just have to, whatever happens, happens to me. Uh, Scripture talks about a much more engaged God-with-us kind of thing. It's also not passivity. I I, I don't have to pay attention. I I don't have to try. Uh, I can just sit back and it, it'll take care of itself. It's, it's not those three things. What is contentment? Contentment, uh, if you look it up just in a dictionary, means a state of happiness or satisfaction. Uh, the Christian meaning means sufficiency, that Christ is our sufficiency. If you go to Unger's Bible Dictionary, which is, by the way, a great book, uh, it says this, it is the disposition of mind through grace that which one is independent of outward circumstances so as not to be moved by envy or anxiety. What that means is we all do pretty well when things are going good, but it's under pressure. Under pressure, the cracks in our character show up, the cracks in the pipe show up, and we go back to what we learned. Most of us learned crisis from who? Our parents. Who did they learn crisis from? Their parents. Who did they learn crisis from? Their parents. So there's a generational train coming down the tracks of how I operate when pressure hits. And it says here we're independent of outward circumstances or pressure so as not to be moved by envy or anxiety. Another way to say it is this way. Contentment 
is knowing that Jesus is with you through all and any circumstances and that you can rest in that. Jesus is with me and I can trust him. Now most of us have some semblance of contentment when things are being added to us, right? Christmas, those kind of things, graduations, that stuff. But it's when things are being taken away that this issue and lesson really becomes real. There's a lot of biblical stories for it. Uh, Take Moses, for example, right? We know the story of Moses uh, floating on the river and the queen takes him in and he becomes in the house of Pharaoh, raised with the best of the best of the best in the nation of which at that time, that nation was the top nation in the world. There was no land like Egypt, and Moses had it all. And what you find is we know the story, Moses ended up in exile out in the desert. And it says this about Moses in Exodus 2.21, that Moses was content to dwell with Jethro, his father-in-law. That's who the man is. Moses was content to dwell with the man, and and he gave Moses his daughter, Zephora, in marriage. Moses, who had it all, was content having lost it all. And there are many more stories in the Bible like this. Joseph, others, we can, we can stack them up. What are, we, what are we talking about here? What we're really talking about is that Paul had learned something. Paul was not an automaton. He wasn't a robot. He was real flesh and blood. He was a person just like you and I are. And he learned things in the Christian life as he went along, just like you and I do. Did you catch that in the verse that we read this morning? Let's look at that again. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, but look at this. For I have what? Learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is encouraging because I think it tells us something that, that Paul learned over the course of events that happened to him as he went on his missionary journey. In other words, he had to learn it just like you and I. And I think, isn't that great news to know that Paul had to learn contentment just like we do, that it didn't come automatic for him? Paul had some great highs, wonderful stuff. Meeting the Lord Jesus personally, planting the New Testament churches, wonderful friends and supporters, uh, miraculous escapes by the sovereign hand of God. I mean, he, he knew some incredible highs. But he also experienced great lows, whipped, beaten, tortured, and stoned, wrongly accused, betrayed, abandoned, shipwrecked. And it says in that context that he learned to be content in all these circumstances. That means both the good and the bad. Now, I don't think any of us would want to sign up for the second half of that list, right? But in a sense, we all get to. We all go through our difficult things as well. And Paul is admonishing and instructing the Philippian church that they must embrace Jesus and his cross. James pointed this out last week when he was speaking. Uh, just they had to embrace the cross just like he had to and that is a lesson for us as well James when he was speaking last week further noted and I think it's important 
Paul was saying this to the Philippian church because he knew that the persecution was only going to get worse. It wasn't going to end. It was actually going to increase. And he was trying to instruct them in contentment, knowing that that was ahead. Paul is admonishing them to rejoice and learn to be content, no matter what the circumstances are that you will face. Again, notice this is something Paul modeled himself. Why would he say rejoice when obviously things are very, very difficult? And the reason is not because the circumstances are good, because they aren't. They weren't good in his life, and I'm sure that many in the Philippian church, it wasn't good in their life. And I'm sure as you're watching this morning and I'm sitting here talking, it's not good in many of your lives. Why would he say rejoice? Well, it's not because the circumstances are good, but because Jesus, who is good, is with you in the midst of those circumstances. And that's what we all have to learn as believers in the Lord Jesus. Again, I don't think any of us would want to sign up for the second half of that list in Paul's life. But in a sense, we all get to. Our lives, like theirs and like Paul's, are marked by highs and lows. And much of our personal sense of well-being how I feel about myself, is deeply impacted, affected, and influenced by what James was pointing out last week. Remember, he was talking about advertising and the impact of advertising on us. And if you study, modern advertising is research, it's designed, they spend millions of dollars on this stuff, uh, and it's designed to let you know what you don't have. You ever thought about that? Right? When you watch a commercial, it's designed to tell you what you don't have. And when you realize what you don't have and you become discontent with it, then you will go out and you will buy it. So that when you buy that product, you will then be content. It's designed not just to tinge your pocketbook, it's designed to tinge your soul as well. It's designed to make you uncontent. It's designed to increase your sense of ungratefulness and thankfulness. It's designed to heighten your sense of insecurity and anxiety. That's why often I tell people, just turn off the television. Stop watching the news and you'll do a lot better. And it's designed to rob and steal away your contentment in Christ. Jesus is no longer enough. You need these things as well. If you had these things alone and don't have Christ, you'd be even more happy because Christ doesn't really fulfill And everything that Paul is trying to tell us is, no, 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 that's all backwards. That's all backwards. Jesus is our contentment. But what would be some areas of potential struggles with contentment? All right, let's just look at a couple this morning. Let me me quickly look at four. All right, we're going to look at four areas that where we could lose our contentment. The first one is what I would call station of life. Station of life is where I live, how I live, Um, where I'm presently at in life, what I do uh, for a living. And all of us, I think, have wrestled at one time or the other with wanting a better position in life. Uh, What I got isn't too bad, but boy, I'm looking at some other people and, oh, I'd sure like that, right? If I, you know, if I had just gotten that promotion, 
if we hadn't moved, how come they got a new car? Man, look at the house they live in. Would it be encouraging for you to know that somebody really spiritual wrestled with stuff like this? What if, what if that someone was a, a secretary, a recorder for a great prophet of the Lord? There was somebody like that. His name was Barak. And Barak was Jeremiah's secretary. So when you read the book of Jeremiah, Barak was the guy who wrote that down. Matter of fact, he had to write it more than once because the king one time took Jeremiah's words, threw it in the fire pit, and burned all of it. So Barak had to rewrite the whole thing again. So Barak was a godly man, and in the midst of dictating Jeremiah's sermons, something very interesting appears. It seems that Barak himself had a layer of discontentment. It says, And do you seek great things for yourselves? Seek them not, for behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all the places which you may go. This is one that I would call disappointment in life, or disappointment with life. Life simply isn't giving him, and sometimes doesn't give us, the things that we expected. Barak thought that serving Jeremiah would lead him to positions of honor and status. And instead, it led him to pressure and persecution. How about us? Have any of us thought that by giving our lives to Jesus, we would thusly be entitled to greater and higher things? Could this possibly be the cause of so much resentment, anxiety, and bitterness among us as a believer? Could this be why there's so many nuns, right? N-O-N-E-S in our culture. Because Jesus didn't give them what they wanted, and because he didn't give them what they wanted, they walked. How come others get ahead and I don't? While you're contemplating that one, let's look at another one. Singleness and marriage. Uh, Let me make some outrageous tongue-in-cheek statements, all right? Probably nothing robs contentment like singleness. The only thing that can outdo it is marriage. And the three people who are here are laughing. I hope you're laughing at home as well, all right? This is the proverbial, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. You know, when we're single, we just wish we had somebody. And when we get that somebody, we wish we could just be single. We're weird creatures, us humans. Now, obviously, these statements are very jaded and sarcastic. And yet they mirror something that is common. Lack of contentment with our station of life. If I just had something else it would be better if she was a little slimmer if he were a little bit more handsome if we only earned a little bit more rare but fortunate is the person who is content in whatever station of life the lord has had them in and that is something that has to be learned number three ties to it and you'll know this one well stuff and possessions Here's the whole thing about stuff and possessions. We can squish it all down into these two things. All right? It's, it's irritating on two levels. 
stuff and possessions. Number one, I'm irritated because I don't have the things I want. Number two, once I get them, they don't satisfy me. So I'm still not content. And possessions can get in the way of God's will for our lives. Just ask the rich young ruler. Paul's statement that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. It has been observed, yet you have never seen a hearse followed by a U-Haul. And yet, many of us live that way. That the stuff is more important than the people. These, of course, these three, of course, all coagulate and congeal and mesh with this last one. And that, of course, is money. I wanted to play the Pink Floyd song with the cash register. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, we couldn't do it. Anyways, money. And if you recognize that, you're old. All right, so here we go. Paul's statement in 1 Timothy 6, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That scripture is well known to us, but it doesn't mean we won't stop chasing it. Now, some qualifiers, all right? There is nothing inherently wrong with money or a decent day's wage or a decent lifestyle. God is not against that. That's not what he's saying here, okay? What he's talking about is the love of money, that I love money. Why is that so dangerous? Because if I love money and what it can do, it says that I'm God, that God's not really God. And money will get me as God the things that I want, and then I can be in control. And so it's the love of money that's so deadly. It's loving money for the sake of money. And and it will give me... um, the things that I crave, and the key word, remember in the desert, desert wanderings, it says in the desert they craved meat, and, and that became a sin and a snare to them. That's what God's talking about here. What it's saying is that I love money for the sake of money, and I lift the acquisition of it, the getting of money, higher than my pursuit of God. The failure to live within our means creates tremendous discontentment, not just with ourselves, but with God himself. God, if you were really God and you were a good God and you really loved me, you'd give me the things I want. And how do we say that to God? We say it this way, God, I need. You ever said that to God? Funny how needs and wants get transfigured there a little bit. Um, again, it can create tremendous discontentment. I'm gonna, we're going to cover more of this uh, after the series in Philippians. We're going to start a little mini-series before Easter just called Losing the Baggage, and we'll cover some of this farther. But for now, let's just ask the question, what was Paul's secret? What was Paul's secret? How could he go through such horrific things and still be content? And the answer lies not in the circumstances that Paul went through, but in the Jesus that Paul trusted through the circumstances. Let's go over those verses one more time. All right? 
Look at what he says. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Twice in this passage, if you look, you might have picked up on it. Notice that um, he's, he uses the word learned. And on the second learned, he attaches the word the secret. It says, I have learned the secret. What's the secret? Well, the secret is, Jesus's, is Jesus and his presence. I've said many times to us, church, and I'll say it again, and I'll, I'll say this to my grave, Jesus is his own reward. If you get Jesus, you get enough. If you get Jesus, that's all you really need. You don't need the stuff. And that's what Paul learned. And so when things got added and when things got pulled away, he could stay content. And it says he learned how to do that. We have to learn the same way. He learned how to do that and that the secret was Jesus' presence. Jesus was with Paul in every good and bad experience. Some of the things were really hard. Don't ever for a moment think they weren't. But what helped Paul be content was the secret that Jesus was with them through it all. And that is true for us today as well. Jesus is with us through all our experiences, good and bad, just like he was with Paul. And it's his strength that allows us to be content in whatever situation we find ourselves in. This, by the way, has to be learned. Right? You learn that. That's part of what God is teaching us as we go through life. We can go through all of life knowing that Jesus, through the presence of his Holy Spirit, like we're experiencing this morning, and, and he's ministering to us while we're here, and you're at home, he's, he's spanning that gap and working through his word and bringing it alive. Uh, he, he's with us in all of our lives through all of the stuff. And we need to depend on that every bit as much as Paul did 2,000 years ago. There's so much more. There's so much more. We can't cover it all. Again, we'll, we'll come back to it in this, the series, Lose the Baggage. We'll talk more about this. Uh, we can't get it all in. I've gone too long already this morning. But uh, Paul says, I have learned the secret. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Church, we need to learn that same lesson. We need to ask God to teach us how to be content when we are being added to and how to be content when it's being taken away. Every generation has learned the wisdom of that word. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you for this incredible piece of scripture. It is an absolute diamond it is incredibly valuable. It's never lost its uh, power over the last 2,000 years. Uh, in many ways, Lord, it, it chafes us because we don't want to be content. We just want to be satisfied with stuff. And Lord, really what we're talking about this morning is being satisfied with you that you would be enough, that you're your own reward. And Lord, we seek you for that this morning.
We pray that you'd have a conversation on whatever level you want to have that conversation with us. We know we're different. We know that for some it's easier than others. But we pray that you will teach us how to learn to be content, that we will possess that secret in you. And we give that to you in your name. Amen. Everyone, thanks so much for joining us this morning. And uh, we'll see you back next week, all right? So, blessings.